Hello, friends. My name is Frances Kitson. I am the minister with Knox United Church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan. And this is podcast three in a series of four, uh, reflecting a series of conversations we have had in the church through the spring of 2023. And these uh, are a series we've called Big Conversations because they've been on big topics. And so uh, we have so far examined um, abortion, medical assistance in dying. This one is on homosexuality. We have one more coming up on reconciliation. And the point of view we're taking on all of these is basically looking at the United Church's policies on these questions, but also uh, some of its theology and history of approaching these issues. So um, if you listen to all four of these, you're certainly going to find themes um, uh, overlapping across them in terms of how the United Church tends to approach topics. So um, a couple of themes that you've probably already noticed have you listen if you've listened to the other two that will come up in this one again generally the united church of canada does not prescribe permit forbid particular actions or choices uh, on the part of its individual members uh, certainly it will do of its staff and ordered ministry, um, but I, probably even there, it's less than um, or more nuanced or open-ended than uh, similar other denominations, other Protestant denominations in Canada. Um, and so uh, in terms of positions or policies that, it, that the church as an institution adopts on particular questions or issues, they really are uh, rooted in a context of considering context, of considering lived experience, potential consequences, and uh, what is called the social gospel. So if you've listened to, to the other podcasts I've done, you'll have heard this quote before, but I want to offer it again because it still applies. So this is um, from uh, an online article um, in the Canadian Encyclopedia, which is www.thecanadianencyclopedia.ca, and it's on what's called the social gospel. And so social gospel um, is defined by the Canadian Encyclopedia like this. The social gospel is an attempt to apply Christianity to the collective ills of an industrializing society and was a major force in Canadian religious, social, and political life from the 1890s through the 1930s. Its central belief was that God was at work in social change, creating moral order and social justice. It held an optimistic view of human nature and entertained high prospects for social reform. Leaders reworked such traditional Christian doctrines as sin, atonement, salvation, and the kingdom of God to emphasize a social content relevant to an increasingly collective society. So um, you'll notice that this uh, social gospel movement 
excuse me, is listed as emerging in the 1890s. And that's significant because although the United Church of Canada was not created, uh, did not come into legal institutional being until 1925, the road to union was uh, much longer than that. And 1902 is when the creation of a United Protestant Church was first proposed. And the basic theological principles were drafted in 1904. And that was a very optimistic time in terms of uh, human and scientific and technological progress in terms of social reform in terms of uh, missionary and uh, evangelist work. And um, there really was this feeling that we can work with God to basically fix all the ills of society. And that was really the the culture in which the United Church was created. So this uh, background of the social gospel is an important part of why the United Church does not tell its individual members how to act or what to choose. Um, it tends to understand sin and personal choice in a larger context of society and systems, taking into account lived experience, um, nuance, complexities, etc. Um, if you look at the history of the United Church's approach to uh, relational issues, such as marriage, divorce, and contraception, um, the United Church from its beginning had a practice of seeing personal questions in nuanced ways, understanding that there were always situations in which um, particular options might be needed or acceptable, even if they were not generally a uh, desirable choice. Uh, so this pops up in terms of 1930s reports on the use of contraception in marriage. Um, it uh, is seen very clearly in the evolution of the United Church's stance on uh, abortion. And um, is very much still seen today in its approach to medical assistance in dying. Um, and in policies, the United Church also tends to take a holistic approach, uh, calling for social reforms, education, improvements, uh, further study um, around the issue. It tends to call on governments also to enact certain uh, reforms or policies or take certain approaches. So all this informs how the United Church eventually approached the question of homosexuality. Uh, so in its early days, the United Church understood sexual activity to be a desirable and healthy part of committed marriage, uh, very much in the understanding that marriage was where sexual activity belonged. Um, and while parenthood was understood to be the fulfillment and purpose of marriage, marital sex for the sake of relationship and emotional intimacy were considered desirable, even if conception wasn't possible. So it was not that you know, uh, sexual interaction and intimacy was off limits, except for the purpose of producing kids. So I think that partly also lays a seed in terms, uh, or plants a seed, um, in terms of a later approach that focused less on um, 
specific acts uh, you know, kind of this choice and this act are okay, these ones are not, and focused more on the relational quality of things. So less in terms of uh, homosexuality is always bad and heterosexuality is always good and more, well, what's the quality of the relationship? How much trust and intimacy is there? What's the safety? Um, is this a relationship that is adding to the quality of lives? Okay, so fast forward to 1969, homosexuality is removed from Canada's criminal code. Uh, 1972, General Counsel agrees to carry out a comprehensive study of human sexuality um, for some reason that was not um, detailed. Uh, this group does not actually meet until 1978. Um, in 1980, two years later, they produce a study document. This was received by General Counsel, made available to the wider church. It was titled In God's Image, Male and Female. Now, this had a significant impact, garnered a lot of attention inside and outside the church, and much of that attention was negative. Excuse me. Um, now, the reason both that it attracted so much attention and that so much attention was negative is that uh, the authors of this study document, so this is a study document, right? It wasn't policy. The authors of this were really trying to detach um, sexual intimacy uh, from uh, any kind of binary thinking around, um, you know, sex in marriage is always good, sex outside of marriage is always bad. Like, um, be, and, and to raise questions of, well, what's the quality of the actual marriage? You know, is it consensual sex within the marriage? Um, or uh, if there's if there's no marriage, well, I mean, is this, you know, you can still have a committed partnership without marriage. And so, in their effort to um, move away from that kind of thinking, in a way they kind of created their own binary in which, um, you know, sexuality was kind of this inherent good in and of itself and repression was always bad. Um, and there wasn't a lot of discussion of sin uh, in terms of how sexuality, sexual activity, excuse me, could be, misused, misappropriated, um, abused, um, etc. Um, so there we have, um, so, so, you know, it made for easy headlines of things like that the United Church says uh, it's okay for anyone to have, you know, like insert your kind of sensationalist headline here. Um, because, and the other thing this report suggested is that um, homosexuality was not uh, in and of itself a problem. So then 1982, Hamilton Conference refused to ordain Susan Maybe who was a married candidate for ministry at the time. She'd realized she was a lesbian, she'd come out of the closet, and she was um, undergoing a divorce from her husband. She was also, random fact, pregnant at the time with um, a child who would later become a minister in the United Church of Canada and is actually a good friend of mine. 
So while there were, this is 1982, while there were ordained lesbian and gay ministers in the United Church, anecdotally speaking, they were largely closeted. As the issue gained prominence in the church, some of these closeted ministers um, had the incredibly distressing and dissonant experience of having, speaking with a congregant who in one breath would praise their work as a minister, and then in the next, of course, not realizing this minister is gay or lesbian, uh, using incredibly violent and hateful language about gay people. Um, and so that was, uh, as you can imagine, incredibly um, distressing and traumatizing. So a Hamilton conference then called on the national church to enact a church-wide policy. Boom. This meant the issue was front and center. So a couple things to note here. First of all, the um, prominence of the issue, the question around homosexuality, A, came before the church in a very organic way, in a sort of bottom-up way, grassroots way. This was not general counsel. I mean, general counsel, yes, had um, authorized a study document, but um, it was not general counsel who frankly probably even wanted to look um in so much detail explicitly at this kind of question uh the second thing to notice is that the question of the legitimacy of sexual orientations beyond heterosexuality came up in the context of ministry and ordination so the question was never is it okay to be gay i mean it it you know, it kind of was in conversation and certainly in culture. Uh, but on paper, on the books, the question before the church was never, is it okay to be gay? Is homosexuality okay? Uh, the question was, can we ordain for ministry a person who is openly self-declared, that was the language of the time, uh, to be lesbian or gay. And the thing is, um, there wasn't a policy on this uh, because when the United Church was formed, it was not, I don't think this crossed anybody's mind to say, oh, you know what, you know what we need a policy on? Uh, we should really make sure gay people don't get to be ministers. I mean, it just wasn't quite apart from uh, people being i think a number of people being ignorant on the question it just wasn't i would think something that was talked about um but then um as you know the the um even just the existence of homosexuality became more known in popular culture i think it it just went without saying that of course you could not ordain an openly gay person until Susan maybe came up and said, you know what, I'd like to be ordained. And then the church had to, if it wanted to say no, it had to articulate the reasons why. Okay, so 1982, Susan maybe says, I would like to be ordained and I'm a lesbian. Hamilton Conference says no and says to general counsel, can we have a policy? 1984, general counsel receives a follow-up report um, of the 1980 study document. So you remember this is the one that uh, got media attention and caused controversy. So this 1984 report, Gift, Dilemma, and Promise, a report and affirmations on human sexuality. 
So it had a number of recommendations, including that uh, sexual orientation, quote, should, oh, excuse me. I should probably record these standing up, get a little more oxygen flowing. Uh, sexual orientation, quote, should not be a, a factor in determining membership in the order of ministry of the United Church of Canada, end quote. So among the things that the church considers when um, discerning whether or not someone is called to ministry, uh, sexual orientation should not be one of the factors. Now, while general counsel adopted some recommendations from the report, including a call to end discrimination against gay and lesbian people, and to acknowledge the church's role in perpetuating injustice um, and this kind of discrimination, uh, general counsel did not adopt the recommendation about ordination. Instead, it was determined that further study was needed. This is a classic United Church move. And so the question was deferred to the 1988 general counsel. There was a 1986 general counsel, but I guess they thought we need more than two years for this. So then, a task group of 13 people was put together, including people uh, lay and ordered, and they represented a full spectrum of opinion within the United Church on this question. They produced a document, lots of documents, called Toward a Christian Understanding of Sexual Orientations, Lifestyles, and Ministry. This was a document making recommendations to general counsel and as such was not policy. Uh, it was made available to church membership before the General Council met in Victoria of 1988, and um, some of its recommendations uh, were that, again, that the General Council affirmed that sexual orientation in and of itself is not a barrier to participation in all aspects of the life and ministry of the church, including the order of ministry. So basically said, you know, again, this should not be a factor. <laughs> Um, now, and of course, the other thing to remember is that uh, the backdrop against which all of this was playing out was the AIDS crisis. And um, while because so this provoked an awful lot of fear, um, understandably, given that there was so little known about the virus and it had such devastating consequences. So while, um, you know, there were certainly members who would have agreed, who uh, were very much opposed to the idea that any gay person should be ordained, um, as a church with its roots in the social gospel movement, there were also many members who were distressed by the hate and ugliness directed towards the gay community while so many were suffering and dying. You know, I mean, like people people died without their families coming to see them or saying goodbye or acknowledging them. Um, and the medical community, I think a lot of, like there were a lot of great doctors and nurses and virologists and researcher, researchers, etc. cetera. Uh, there were also, of course, a lot who basically figured, well, they brought this on themselves. Uh, churches became involved in supporting AIDS patients, churches called for better social supports, further research into AIDS, and um, this, I think, also played a part in how United Church members viewed gay people, right? You, it, it's hard to demonize someone when you see the incredibly ugly vitriol that gets thrown at them by people who are afraid. Okay, so General Council 1988 was meeting in, in August of that year. 
And um, three months before that, um, the sessional committee on the question of the ordination of gay and lesbian people started reading through the material. Now, um, it used to be that for various proposals, for specific proposals, not everyone, um, not every commissioner, not every person with voting rights, general counsel, voted on every question. You actually, um, no, that wasn't how it worked. Or, or, or no, there were certain sessional, there were, there were committees assigned to each proposal to do a deep dive into the material and make recommendations to the council so that not everyone had to read absolutely everything. Now, um, sessional committees, as they were called, did not usually start reading through material three months before general counsel. But such was the volume of material generated by this question, the petitions, the letters uh, for and against in all kinds of places uh, coming in to um, the uh, general counsel office that they needed to start early because there was just so much. Um, and so like the task group that had studied the question between 1984 and 1988, this sessional committee represented the full spectrum of, of opinion on the question, including two openly gay ministry personnel. So general counsel meets in August and this sessional committee on this question keeps working through the process. They present draft recommendations to the council, they get feedback, they go back and they rework it. Uh, they wound up producing a new document titled Membership, Ministry, and Human Sexuality, uh, and this recommended by consensus within the group that existing processes for accepting people as members into the United Church should continue to apply, and that all members could be considered to be ordained. So this was, so basically they were saying, okay, well, as it stands on the books, our, our requirement for someone being ordained is to be a member in good standing of the United Church of Canada. Now, of course, there are lots of other requirements, but that's kind of your basic to even start the process. And so what they were basically saying is, we just keep it the way it is, that this is the criterion for being um, admitted, at least into the process of discernment. Are you a member in good standing of the United Church of Canada? Yes? Okay, great. Let's have a conversation. And that sexual orientation should not be part of the criteria. So general counsel, so they, they present um, their final report and with the amount of conversation, debate, discussion, argument, um, the meeting around that particular proposal went till 2.25 in the morning. Next day, final vote was taken and the recommendation passed. No official tally was taken. Those who were there say that between two thirds to three quarters of votes were in favor. And 71 commissioners requested that their dissenting voices votes be recorded. So there you have a bit of history. So then what happened, of course, is that it's not like passing this recommendation suddenly made everything safe and made all gay and lesbian ministers or candidates for ministry um, comfortable with coming out to their congregations. 
and in fact what also happened is that several congregations in the wake of this decision passed motions that they would not ever call an openly gay or lesbian person um, it was also perceived that then a lot of the having passed this recommendation um, a lot of the action or work of the church was around reassuring congregations that they didn't have to call uh, a gay or lesbian minister so you know kind of a step forward and a step back that said, um, uh, I read a book, a very short book called Daring to Be United, uh, published by United Church Publishing House. It's by Allison C. Huntley. That's Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N, Huntley, H-U-N-T-L-Y. And she wrote this book in 1998, 10 years later. And she wrote of how a lot of congregations that passed these motions saying never ever will we call a gay or lesbian minister 10 years later we're calling gay and lesbian ministers so it evolves now okay what does the bible say about homosexuality well first of all the question of what the bible says about anything is uh, not neutral to begin with, because technically the Bible does not say anything. It, you, you know, you open up your Bible with a question, you let it fall open, you will hear silence coming from those pages. What the Bible does is it's a, it presents, it offers a collection of writings, most of which are story, uh, many of which are also sayings, collections of sayings, poetry, um, and letters, and very little of which is explicit instruction. So when you sit, ask the question, what does the Bible say about something? Well, it depends how you perceive the Bible to say anything, right? So the Bible mentions slaves quite a bit. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul, the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, um, who writes all kinds of letters that are among, that are the earliest dated writings of the New Testament. Uh, he writes instructions for masters how to treat their slaves and slaves how to respond to their masters. So what is the Bible saying about slavery in that case? Is, is the Bible saying that slavery is okay? Um, what, what, how do we interpret that? That's the kind of question that we bring to so much interaction with the Bible. If the Bible mentions something, what is it saying about it? And, um, the thing is the Bible is not always explicit. In fact, it's kind of rarely explicit about what it's saying about a particular topic. Okay, so around homosexuality, well, for one thing, nowhere in the Bible does it mention what we would call sexual orientation. Our understanding of this concept, sexual orientation, as an inherent part of a person's personality or self, is very recent. Uh, the word homosexual was first coined in 1868 by a Hungarian writer, Karoli Maria Kertbeni. I know I'm mangling that pronunciation. Uh, now, it was first used in English in 1892. So this word is um, just about 150 years old tops. 
now the Bible does have a few verses that mention, mention sexual activity between people of the same gender and does not speak positively of them. Now, I'm going to point out there are very, 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 very few passages, verses that mention same-sex sexual activity. Uh, it is not, it would seem, it is not a preoccupation of any biblical writer. So among these um, passages are uh, Genesis 19, verses 1 to 11, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13, the Holiness Code. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, the sexually immoral shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, uh, the purpose of the law. And book of Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 32. God's wrath against the pagans. Now, I'm going to turn to Alison Huntley here for her exposition on these passages. Okay, so when it comes to Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to read from her book. This is page 24 in Daring to be United. So this is what Alison Huntley writes um, about this particular story. So this is a story in which um, two angels encounter Abraham's nephew, Lot, at the city gate in Sodom. Lot offers them hospitality at his house. Perhaps thinking the strangers are spies, the men of Sodom surround Lot's house and demand that Lot bring them out to us so that we may know them. The word know in Hebrew, yadcha, is used a few times in Hebrew scripture to mean to have sexual intercourse with. So translators have sometimes assumed that is what it means here. Scholars, however, point out that yadcha is only used, used to denote heterosexual intercourse. For homosexual intercourse, the word shachab, I think I have that right. Shachab is used consistently. So Huntley's point here is that if you look at the original Hebrew, the particular choice of word in context does not seem to indicate that these men are outside Lot's house uh, demanding that he uh, let the strangers out so that they can rape them. It then goes on, though, uh, some, so some content warning here uh, about sexual violence. Um, to continue with Huntley's explanation, uh, Lot attempts to placate the men of Sodom by offering them his two virgin daughters, begging them not to harm his guests because that would violate his obligation to offer hospitality to strangers. The story concludes when the two angels strike all the men of Sodom with blindness. Many scholars think the story is about violating laws of hospitality at the time, which decreed that a guest in one's house was inviolable. As biblical scholar John Boswell points out, hospitality laws were enforced by threat of death by God, because in those times travel would have been dangerous and often fatal were it not for people taking travelers in for the night. Now, Huntley goes on to point out when the prophets referred to Sodom and, Jer and Gomorrah, and she's got passages from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Luke. 
Uh, when they refer to Sodom and Gomorrah, the stories refer not to homosexuality or homosexual acts, but about immorality in general, gluttony, social injustice, not offering welcome to strangers, not caring for the poor. Um, and then Huntley also gives another example of, uh, or um, goes through another couple of passages that are often interpreted as being uh, decrees against homosexuality. Uh, there are two passages in the Hebrew scriptures that specifically condemn homosexual acts. In the Holiness Code of Leviticus, under penalty of death, a man is prohibited from lying with a man as with a woman. This is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. Huntley goes on. It is important to note in looking at these verses in their original context, that they are part of a much larger list of rules and regulations. Um, and so those particular regulations include rules about eating shrimp, rabbit and pork, Leviticus 11, against crossbreeding animals, planting two kinds of seed in the same field, wearing clothing made of two different kinds of material, Leviticus 19.19, uh, against tattoos, certain kinds of haircuts, Leviticus 19, 27 to 28. And none of these are rules that we in the United States of Canada uh, observe, or even, I would say, grant all that much importance to them. Um, and uh, we might say, yeah, but um, sex is on a different level from what you eat or what you wear. But that's an assumption on our part you know there are cultures there are still there are still observant jews for whom what you eat is extremely important um and how you eat it and where with whom uh huntley writes many of the obligations of the holiness code in leviticus are designed to distinguish early israelite society from that of its pagan neighbors they are rules about separation hence the importance of avoiding mixtures and about separateness. Some scholars say that the sexual prohibitions in Leviticus against homosexual behavior have less to do with homosexuality and more to do with is distinguishing Israelite society from certain ritualized sexual acts in the religious observances of its Canaanite neighbors. So that's a couple of instances of biblical scholarly examination of biblical passages that have uh, and still are used to condemn uh, homosexuality. And I want to point out that um, even the act of giving weight or authority to biblical scholarship of this kind, the, the matter, things like, well, what does the original Hebrew choose for its words? How are those words used elsewhere? Uh, considerations like what was the context of this entire passage? What was it written for? These are not questions that all Christians are interested in. Uh, they're not seen as having legitimate value by all Christians. Um, and there is a there is something to be respected in the um, understanding of this is God's word and it does not change. 
um, because, in fact, as uh, on our, one of our documents around the question of homosexuality observed, we are humans um, extremely good at fooling ourselves, right? So we're very good at rationalizing what we want to do. And um, we're also very good at, uh, we're also limited, you know, we're limited in our understanding. So there can be value in just saying, you know, this is it. This is what the Bible says. There's no uh, sort of fudging around with interpretation, context, etc. This is what it says. Um, and you can see why people would find that, you know, kind of very anchoring. Um, but it's not the approach that we in the United Church tend to take. We see that, um, you know, things like scholarship, uh, reason, context, tradition, these are things we take into account. Okay, so, um, friends, in the end, basically what it comes down to, um, all of us, choose which biblical verses, stories, and values we rank above others. Um, the Bible is a mini library between two covers. It has stories, values, teachings that seem to contradict each other. Um, not all stories or uh, letters or even verses uh, carry the same weight. You know, so love thy neighbor as thyself carries a, a different weight from, uh, you know, one of the letters in the, one of the letters to Timothy, where the author writes, um, oh, and please, uh, I forgot my coat cloak last time I was there. So please keep it for me till I come back. Um, so we, none of us approach the Bible neutrally and we all have to decide for ourselves, what is my, um, value, what is my verse, what is the teaching against which I measure everything else? What's the yardstick I use when it comes to the Bible? And uh, for me, it's um, I love my neighbor as myself. And when I uh, hear the stories of lesbian and gay, but also trans, uh, you know, and, and non-binary uh, folks who say, um, you know, it was killing me to try and be someone I wasn't. Um, I cannot perceive that there's any love in asking these children of God to uh, try and tear their souls in half in order to do something that they think might be pleasing to God. So, I hope that's been helpful, friends. Um, a quick note about um, where you can find a number of the documents to which I've referred. Um, there's a website called uh, United Church Commons. It is commons.united-church.ca. Um, if you go to the What We Believe and Why folder, there will be a number of subtopics in there uh, with various policy and statements, um, policy documents and statements in there around particular issues, one of which is gender and sexuality. Um, and uh, also, as I said, Alison Huntley's book, Daring to be United, is a really valuable resource. So friends, I hope that's been helpful. Um, if you have any follow-up questions or thoughts, I'd be happy to hear them. You can reach me via email, francis.knox.uc at fastmail.com.
Frances.com. F-R-A-N-C-E-S dot K-N-O-X dot U-C at Fastmail. That's F for Frank, A for Apple, S for Sugar, T for Thomas. M for Mother, A for Apple, I for Iguana, L for Lima.com. Thank you very much. Take care.